And we're going to read John 1-1 as our text verse, and you can be seated. So when you find John 1-1, just stand all over the house once you find it. John 1-1. Y'all waiting on me now. The Bible says in John chapter number 1, verse number 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We're going to kick off this series with a message entitled, The Beginning. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your word was enough. Thank you that Jesus was enough. Thank you that Jesus was the answer. Jesus was the solution. God, help us to see from eternity past, you've always wanted, you've always worked towards your redemptive work of salvation on the cross. Lord God, I pray that in these dark and troublesome times, in these times where we don't know which way to turn, we don't know which leadership to look to, we don't know which source of information is correct, let us just be reminded who you are, what you do, who you love, who you died for, who you interacted with, who you hung out with, who you, who you cared for. Each and every person you had an interaction with, God, we're blessed to have the Gospel of John that wrote things in such a way to show us that you are God the Son. Tonight, God, I I pray that you be with your people. You get me out of your way. Help them to hear the message you have for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Amen. This gospel is written uh, by the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's the one that he was given charge over Jesus' mother when he died. He's the one that he gave a glimpse into heaven on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, this book is, to the best of scholars' ability, determined to be written uh, by John the disciple. John that uh, followed Jesus for three and a half years. John that was part of the inner circle of Peter, James, and John that saw Jesus in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. One of the only disciples to uh, not suffer one of the most horrendous martyrs' deaths. One of the only disciples to stick with Jesus, to not deny him, to not denounce him, to <clears throat> uh, be one of the ones who would stand firm there in Jerusalem and stand firm and preach the gospel after Jesus' ascension. And uh, John's purpose in his gospel, he wrote it to believe right around uh, A.D. 90 is the best we can tell. And uh, the purpose in his gospel, each and every gospel, you've heard it said many times. But for those of you who don't know, uh, each gospel kind of gives the story of Jesus, the facts of Jesus' life from a different perspective. And as John was seeking to write, his total and pure purpose was to portray Jesus and explain and show Jesus as Jesus, the Son of of God and Jesus God the Son. And that's what we just read here in John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Tonight, it's important to understand that we don't serve just another prophet. We don't serve just another man. We don't worship another great teacher or a great philosopher. In these times where this religion is saying this, and that religion is saying that, and those people's religion is saying this, and all these different worldwide religions, we are the only one, mark it down, you can't find another, whose man that they worship was also 100% man and 100% God. This, this series is going to be awesome. We're going to look at all the interactions and all the uh, conversations that Jesus has, both with his disciples, with sinners, with Pharisees. And we're going to really get to know and really understand who the Son of God was. But John's purpose in this gospel was to really lay the groundwork and really lay the foundational truth that Jesus was and is God. And we're going to look at the first five verses by introduction and see these five huge truths that John lays out. Before he says anything else, before he gets uh, into anything else, John is the only gospel that uh, begins 
Jesus' ministry in eternity past, in the beginning. All the other Gospels uh, begin it with his birth there in Bethlehem uh, and set the scene socially and culturally, but John is the only Gospel that sets the scene from eternity past. So number one, the first thing John wants us to understand is that Jesus has always been in control. In the beginning, before the world was formed, he was there and he knew what was going on. The, the term word or logos speaks of intelligence. It speaks of the fact that in the beginning, the same language used as Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And we know that before the earth was, before, the, the, before God said, let there be light, Jesus was there and he was in total control. He was at one and at unity with the Father. He knew what was going on before this world be, became into being or even was in existence yet. Jesus has always been in control. Verse number two, Jesus has always been a companion. Look at verse number two. The same was in the beginning with God. All right, Genesis 1, 26, the Bible says, uh, and God said, let us make man in our image. We know that from the very beginning, in the first six days of creation, that Jesus was in unity with God. There was no disagreements. There was no two separate mindsets or two separate kingdoms or two separate creations. And many would try to dispel and try to say that Jesus and the Father are at enmity with one another. And Jesus was coming down to kind of get us off the hook with His dad. Or that is not the case. Jesus was, is, and always will be completely and totally at one and at peace with His Father, God the Father. And He always has been. In verse number 2, it says, The same was in the beginning with God. With God. Jesus has always been right there as His companion. Number 3, Jesus has always been Creator. Look at verse number 3. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus has always been Creator. He has not ever been at any point in time, at no point in eternity past, eternity present, or eternity future. Jesus has never been creation. He has always been and always will be creator. There is always this theme, and your Jehovah's Witnesses and your Mormons will set out to teach that Jesus was created by God, that God literally begot Him, and God literally uh, birthed Him, and God literally made Him and manifested Him to send to the earth. No, 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 that's not what this is. Jesus has always been there. Before anything was, He was. Before anything was, I am. That's what God said, and that's what God meant when He looked and He created, and He began to speak into the things of existence in this world. Jesus was just as much part of it. He was God the Son then. He was Creator then, and He's Creator now. And there's never been anything to dispel that. There's never going to be anything to change that. Jesus has always been Creator. So when you look at the world around you, when you look at the circumstances around you, you look at the, uh, the infrastructure that man's been allowed to make, and you look at the ideas that have entered into the hearts and the minds of men, and you look at the world even now in 2020, know that God... Jesus has always been involved in it. Jesus has always been birthing the ideas of creation. He's always been the originator, the ideas of, uh, of, of, of farming and the ideas of flowers and the ideas of birds and bees and trees and the animal kingdom and all these things that you could seek to place the uh, credit to evolution or try to place the credit to a big bang or try to place the credit to uh, everything's an accident and stardust bumped into stardust and became more stardust and that stardust evolved into this and that and the other. Jesus was the originator. Jesus was and is the creator. Right there in verse number three, you can take it to the bank. Verse number four, he has always been conceiver. Look at verse number four. 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This word life speaks of eternal life. There is no life except life through Christ. There is no eternal life except life in Christ. And what you have to understand is that uh, article they use here, in Him was life. It was not by Him, through Him, or around Him, or because of Him. It was literally in Christ was life. There was no life. There is no life unless you are in Christ, unless you are in companionship and communion and in surrender and in his, under His blood. And before the fall of man, at the beginning, He was the source. He was the generator. He was the one propelling man into eternal life. Even before Adam and Eve sinned, Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, was the literal conceiver and giver and breather of life itself. Based here on verse number four, in him was life and the life was the light of men. Then we know sin entered in the garden in uh, Genesis three and he was still that life. He was still the only giver of that life. But now there was sin in the way that had to be dealt and taken out of the way before that life could be attained again by faith. And verse number five. Uh, so we looked at Jesus has always been in control. He's always been a companion. He's always been the creator. He's always been the conceiver. And verse number five, he has always been calling. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. From day one, from Genesis three, from the time Adam and Eve cast themselves out of the garden by their own sin and their own choice, Jesus has always been calling. Jesus has always been seeking. Jesus has always been putting one foot in front of another, coming after you and coming after me. He's always been seeking to call and to bring and to comfort and to place the decision time, to give the gift, to give the blood, to give the sacrifice to you and to me. He's always been calling. He's always been creating. He's always been calling after you and calling after me. There's never been a time where Jesus was not interested in you. There's never been a time where Jesus was not interested in me. There's never been a time where Jesus didn't want to come and save us from our sins. There's never been a time where Jesus Jesus didn't know your name. Have you ever thought about that? That nothing that surprises you in your life has ever caught God by surprise? That He's always been involved in it? He's always known what's going to go on in it? He's always known what's going to cause you pain? He's always knows what's going to cause you joy? He's always known what's going to uh, get you to react and get you to do and get you to want? And He's watched you and He's cared for you. And you, how many remember the day He called for you and the day He came to you and the day He embraced you and the day He took your sins away? He's always been calling. It has always been His will to shine into that darkness. But we see here that the Bible says that the darkness comprehended it not. It means it wasn't able to seize it. It wasn't able to get a hold of it. It wasn't able to understand what that light was, where that light was coming from. A lot of times we, we interact and we see this reaction to people when you shine your light, when you tell them about the joy in your heart, you tell them about Jesus, they just can't quite grasp it. The darkness comprehended it not. God lays, or G John lays down these five huge truths right here in chapter 1. And then he summarizes, this is a very introductory message, but he summarizes Jesus' ministry right here in chapter 1. You could read John chapter 1 and have a pretty much brief synopsis, a brief survey of Jesus' entire ministry right here in John chapter number 1. But tonight, I want to seek to do what John did 
and just kind of give you three big things that Jesus did that you may say you've heard preached a thousand times. You may say you've heard preached a thousand different ways. You may have heard this very same outline. I don't know. I wrote this outline on a sticky note on my lunch break about a week and a half ago. That's when I wrote this outline. But it may have been preached hundreds of times. It may have been preached at a church you've been to before. But I see three big things Jesus did right here in chapter number one that I can never get over. That I can never seem to uh, push to the side and, and fail to recognize. That I can never just accept as the normal as or as accept as uh, part of it. I am still ecstatic. I am still excited about these things that we're going to go to. Number one, look at verse number 11. Read those first two words with me. He came. He came. I've never got over the fact that He came. I've never got over the fact that from eternity past, He watched all the things that this world did. He watched those generations of Noah be destroyed by the flood for their wickedness. And He watched that next generation become to grow up and begin to live and begin to be just as wicked. He watched as the nation that He called out, as the nation that He set aside, as the Abrahamic covenant that He made. He watched as they turned their backs on Him time and time again. Yet John penned it in verse number 11. He came. He came. He had every reason not to come. He had every reason to stay right where he was in the presence of his father. But he came. Have you gotten over that? Is that just a detail that you're able to just accept now? Because as I was studying this, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Bryce, you could be guilty of getting over the fact that he did not have to come, but he came. He did not have to take one step for you. He did not have to leave the splendors and the glories of heaven for you, but He came. In verse number 11, He came despite rejection. Look at verse number 11. He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. I'm here, Israel. I'm here. I've come. I've come to deliver you. The law has condemned you. I've come to give you grace. I've come to come to give you for forgiveness. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And what did they do? They rejected him. They rebelled against his teaching. They rebelled against. He was God the Son. He knew that those Jews had gotten so caught up in their pride and so caught up in their lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. He knew long before he left the splendors of heaven that he was going to be rejected of his own, that the very nation he had cared for and loved all since that nation's existence was going to reject him yet he came he came despite rejection despite that the very family that cared for him and birthed him and raised him up his hometown was one of the most notorious cities that kicked him out that rejected him they said aren't thou the carpenter's son who are you to tell us that we're sinners who are you and he's saying I am that I am. No. We don't want any part of it. Can you imagine the love someone would have to have to knock on your door knowing you were going to slam it in their face? And not just knock once, but to knock over and over and over and over. He came despite rejection. He came delivering revelation. Look at verse number two. But as many has received him. Pastor touched on this verse this morning. To them gave he the power or the privilege to become the sons of God. Here it is. Even to them that 
believe on his name. He came delivering revelation. Here, salvation, the process about by one who comes to know their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, receiving the gift of God by believing by faith is clearly taught here in verse number 12. Look at it again. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. How did they receive him? Even to them that believe on his name. He came because he knew all he had to do All he had to do to release those that were under the grips of sin and under the blinders of sin and under the blinders of... All he had to do, all he had to get people to understand was that they simply had to believe. He knew he had to die on the cross. He knew he had to make that one time eternal offering for sin. But he knew that all would be required of his darling bride. All that would be required of his darling believers of you and me. All that would be required for those to spend eternity with him in heaven would be that they simply believed. That's it. For God so loved the world. We're going to be all over this verse for probably the next four or five weeks. That he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him. In our effort to better understand who Jesus was, we have to understand that he did not come, he did not live, he did not die so that you could do something to get your way to heaven. He did not come, he did not live, he did not die, he did not rise again so that you could dunk yourself in a baptismal pool and say all your sins are gone. Or that you could donate a million dollars to a charity and say that you've bought your way into heaven. Or so that you could be a good person and say that your good deeds are going to balance out the bad deeds. No, he came, he lived, he died, and he rose again so that you would believe. Because that's the only thing that's going to matter. That's the only thing that's going to matter. And in this world that's mixed with this religion and this religion and this, and, and this pretense and, and this, you name it, fill in the blank here, Christianity, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only one that says all you got to do is believe. That's it. Believe. And if you'll just take the step of faith, I'll give you the courage to believe. I'll give you the boldness to believe. I'll give you the mercy and the grace to lay your sins down at the foot of the cross. You just got to believe I'm willing to do it. It's the only one. He came delivering revelation. He came delivering a truth that no one had ever heard before. He came delivering a message that no one would have ever wrote up in a million years. They all thought they had to give something. They all thought that they had to do this or do that or fulfill this or fulfill that. But he came just simply to say, just believe. He came despite rejection. He came delivering revelation, but he came delighting in the reverence of the Father. Look at verse number 13. Which were born not of blood, nor by the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. I've come to do the will of the Father who hath sent me. Why did he come? It wasn't just because 
He loved us. He does love us. It wasn't just because Jesus loved us. It was because God loved us. It was because His Father loved us. It was because God the Father and God the Son were in unity with their willingness to redeem and to save that which was lost. And Jesus, again, was not this man, was not this deity that simply came to get us off the hook with an angry God or deliver us from the hand of an angry God. No, He was the direct messenger of a loving God, of a righteous God, of a righteous judge that knew we deserved hell, that knew we deserved death, yet He thought it big enough of you and big enough of us. He loved you enough and He loved me enough to sacrifice His darling Son so that as Jesus came, as He began to preach, as He became to deliver these messages, He was doing the direct will and the direct love and He was under the direct orders of His Father. Who is Jesus, God the Son? Why did He come despite rejection? Why did He come delivering revelation? Because He came delighting and reverencing and revering His Father. Doing the direct will of God the Father. Number one, He came. Number two, look at verse number 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He was made flesh. He came to us and we beheld him. But that's a two-way street. If we were beholding him, then he was beholding us. For him to come and be born of a virgin in that little town of Bethlehem, we weren't just beholding a virgin birth. Our virgin-born baby was beholding us. So number one, he came, but number two, he saw. He saw. He grew up for 33 years, 100% man. He grew up for 33 and a half years, 100% affected by the things we are affected by. 100% rejected by the things that reject us. 100% tempted by the things that tempt us. He didn't just come and remain uh, sinless and remain above all the levels because He was God. No, He came and He remained sinless and He remained, uh, remained above all reproach because He was also 100% man. You see, we're going to get a little deep here, young people. God gave the title deed to the earth, to Adam back in Genesis. And he gave Adam dominion over all the earth and all the creeping things and all the uh, beasts of the field. And I know I'm misquoting it, but he gave the title deed of the earth to man, to Adam. Adam and Eve, by their disobedience in God and obedience to Satan, surrendered that deed to who? Satan. That's why Satan holds or held until Calvary, the title deed to the earth. Now, if God just snatched it back out of the hand of Satan, he'd be kind of an Indian giver, wouldn't he? He'd be kind of admitting that he made a mistake in giving it to man. The only one who could redeem that title deed, who could take that deed to the earth back from Satan, was man, because it was man that delivered it unto Satan, and it was man who was given it by God. Which is why, which is why, which is why the Word became flesh. 
which is 100% why it had to be 100% God and 100% man to take that title deed. Why did he dive down into the pits of hell after he died on the cross? Why did he go down to preach those ones in hell? Why did he go and lead captivity captive? Why? Because he was 100% man that died 100% sinless and regained that title deed to the earth. And in Revelation, when they cry out, who is worthy to loose the seal? Who is worthy to open the book? He can say as 100% man, 100% God, I am. I am. That's why he had to come. That's why he had to see with human eyes. And thank God, we have an high priest that is unlike the high priest of this world who can't be touched by the feelings of our infirmities. But we have a high priest who in all ways was tempted as are we. He saw. He saw. He saw our humanity. He saw the parts of growing up as a young person. John O. Jesus was a teenager. John O. Jesus was a little, little guy. John O. Jesus, the Jesus we worship, the Jesus we serve, was a college and career age man. Did you know that Jesus had to face the same temptations and the same trials of purity as you did? He had, the same, the, he had to face the same temptations and the same trials of obeying His Father like you do? He was 100% man. He saw our humanity. But not that, just that, but He saw our humiliation. From our fallen state, we got a glimpse of His glory. But His loving eyes saw our lost souls. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And that's a two-way street. We're looking at Him in His glory, but He's looking at us in our sinful, lost condition. He saw you on that cross. He saw me on that cross. He saw every wicked thought, every wicked deed, every rebellious act, every cowardly inaction, every sin of omission, every single one of them. There in Bethlehem, Judea, Jerusalem, to the uttermost parts of the earth, He looked forward into eternity future and saw you and me sitting here, maybe with unclean hearts, unclean lips, unclean mind. And He died anyway. He died anyway. The God that could see our uttermost inward sin died anyway. He saw our humanity, but He saw our humiliation too when He was made flesh and dwelt among us. He saw all the things we gave into, all the weaknesses we let control our lives. He overcame them all so that we through Him can do the same. Is that right? He saw our humiliation. But thank God, He saw our hope. Look at verse 15. John bare witness of Him and cried, saying, This was He whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. People were flocking to John the Baptist by the droves. For his message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. People were flocking to John the Baptist by the droves. Why? Because they had hope that there was something more out there. They had hope that there was something bigger on the way. 
They had hope that there was something more to this thing called life than just some Jewish sacraments or some 613 laws of Moses. Or There was just more to it than just dotting every I and crossing every T. There was more to it, to it than dying for jihad or dying for Muhammad or dying for Allah. There was more to it than fortune cookies and goodwill and good luck. There was more to it than a dead Buddha. There was more to it than a dead Muhammad. There was more to it than what the world was teaching them. There was more to it than wisdom. There was more to it than riches. There was more to it than political prowess. There was more to it than power or finance or you name it. There was something to hope for. He saw our hope. He saw our hope. Humanity. And I see it in this younger generation stronger than anyone right now. They have hope. They're looking. They're looking. They're looking. They're looking. And it would be easy to get in our flesh and look at the world and go, they don't care. Look at the young generation that's doing all these God-awful things and say, they're not seeking after God. When, when you put them under the sound of preaching, they want to know more. Because that is a lot of times the first time they've ever heard anything real in their entire lives. And when they saw John the Baptist preaching under the power and conviction that he had, they saw something that they had never seen before. And they were flocking to that man by droves. And John the Baptist had to simply say, your hope is not in me. Your hope is the one that's coming after me. Your hope is in the one that was there at the beginning. Your hope is in the one that has existed from eternity past. Your hope is in the one that is 100% God and 100% man. He sees you. He came. He saw. Number three, he whooped the devil. No, I'm just kidding. He came. He saw. It is true. He came. He saw. Look at verse number 16. Of his fullness have we all received in grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth come by Jesus Christ. He came, he saw, he gave. You've probably heard this outline a hundred times. But in 2020, I needed to be reminded of it. I needed to be reminded that despite this world's wicked condition, he came. And despite you and I and our sinfulness, he saw hope for us. And despite our rejection of him in our sinful lives that we live in his name sometimes, he gave anyway. What did he give? The Bible tells us. Verse number 17. For the law was given by Moses, but grace. He gave grace. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. You know who wrote that? The man that was on the Damascus Road on the way to go kill and persecute and arrest Christians. That's who wrote that verse. Where sin did abound. 2020, Fox News, CNN, you name it. All the wickedness you're trying to push and all the wickedness you're trying to promote. Where sin did abound. Grace did much more abound. He gave grace. A lot of times we want to give this world a piece of our minds. We want to give them a swift kick to the rear. We want to give them a backhand. 
And Jesus, God the Son, could have flicked this world out into eternity without a second thought. We'd have deserved it. But He gave grace. He gave grace. Right here from the very beginning, John wanted to be very clear. He gave grace. He didn't bring, he will. But when he came, he didn't bring wrath and judgment, hatred and meanness. He will. That day's coming. But right now we are in the dispensation of grace. And he's willing that all sinners everywhere repent. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know what that all includes? That all includes those sodomites. He died for them too. He's highly displeased and he's highly disgusted with that lifestyle. No question. But he loves them. That all includes those racists on both sides. You got something to say about another race that's negative? Don't say it around this preacher. Because God created the human race. He created the human race. Yes, people are different. Yes, there are different cultures. And it's our differences that make us beautiful. God made each and every one of us different. But he gives grace unto all those people. He gave grace. He gave truth. Okay, verse number 17 again. But grace and truth. This is something I especially just, it's so hard to get across to the young people because nothing, nothing, nothing they hear is true. Many of them can't hear the words, I love you and believe it. Many of them can't hear the words, I care about you or I'm going to take you to school in the morning and believe it. Nothing they hear is true. And for 400 years during that time between Malachi and Matthew, nothing those Pharisees were telling those Jews that he came unto was true. They were being fed a load of baloney that they had to do this and do that and pay this and pay that and fulfill this and fulfill that. They were being manipulated. And Jesus was the first one to say, it's not of works lest any man should boast. It's the gift of God. It's by grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. He was the first one, the only one, to ever produce pure and total truth. You may think the world's not concerned with truth anymore. They just want to hear opinions. They just want to hear filibustering. They just want to hear this and man's wisdom and eloquence. And, but you hit them with the truth of the matter. That no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, that God loves them. Whether they admit it or not, it hits them right here. It hits them. Because that's the truth of the matter. God wants to save them. Jesus was the first time the only time, and will always be the only time this world hears the truth. We carry it around every day. We're blessed to live in a country where this is legal. We carry the way, the truth, and the life around with us every day, here and here. Are we showing it, or is it in the trunk of our car? Are we reading it, or is it in our nightstand until next Sunday? If anybody's guilty of not reading their Bible enough, it's me. If anybody's guilty of not being in the Word as much as they should be, you're looking at them. And I know with a conviction like mine and a wife like mine that helps me 
to understand and reminds me what's important. If I struggle with it, I know we all do. I know if the disciples and the apostles and the founders of the early church struggled with just sticking with what the Bible says, then so do we. He gave grace. He gave truth. He gave it all. He took the shame, the sorrow, the sentence. He became sin who knew no sin that we may become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is the first teaching of righteousness by imputation where he literally took our sins and placed them on him and took his righteousness and placed them on us. It was seen back in the garden when he made them coats of skins and covered their sin. All the way back then, he made the promise that he would give it all. That he would give it all. He would hold nothing back. He would hold nothing back. He gave up everything for you and for me. It's time we remember that. It's time we remember that. With the things that we have been given, with the talents that we've been blessed to have, with the abilities and the kindness and the fruits that he's put in all of our lives, it's time to remember what he gave to us and what we have to give to others. For it is more blessed to give than to receive. We're coming up, and there's no easy time to be a Christian, but we're coming up on one of the easiest times to be a Christian in the, in the manifestation of outreach and invitation. We're coming up on Thanksgiving. No one on this planet ought to be more grateful than a Christian whose sins have been forgiven. No one on the face of this planet ought to be more giving than the one who recognizes and knows that God gave them His only begotten Son. As we go through this series in the book of John and remind ourselves who Jesus was, I can't wait. I'm so excited. But we can't just gloss over the fact of the fundamentals that He came, He saw, and He gave. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for these very simple truths that You came in spite of us. You saw us in our terrible condition. You saw us in our humiliated condition. And God, that you gave it all anyway. You gave us grace. Where we deserve judgment, where we deserve punishment, where we deserve wrath, you gave us grace. And where we were tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, you gave us truth. You gave us something we could hold to. You gave us something we could stand firm on. You gave us a solid foundation. That was the word. God, I pray and I thank you for saving my soul, for coming to where I was, despite myself, for seeing me, despite my condition, and for giving your all for me. God, I pray as Anchor of Hope is a church filled with Christians, filled with good people, filled with people that want to love and want to serve and want to be a light for you. God, help them never to forget the fundamentals of John chapter 1. Help us never to forget. Help us never to cease to tell others that you came, you saw, and you gave. Father, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'll see us all. On Wednesday night at 645, be in prayer for those teenagers. Be in prayer for those teenagers. We're going through the book of Romans out there. So pray, pray, pray.